Most of us remember exactly where we were on September 11th, 2001. Lisa Beamer certainly does. Her husband, Todd, had been on one of the planes that crashed. It was on the one that crashed in Pennsylvania, to be exact. And uh, he was the one that was quoted as saying, let's roll just prior to the plane's crash. This is her account of her first few minutes after she discovered that it was indeed her husband's plane that had crashed. No, I screamed helplessly at the television. Without a shred of hard evidence, I knew intuitively that Todd was on that flight. Suddenly, I felt as though my body weighed a million pounds. I fell to my hands and to my knees, and I gasped, no. I made my way to my bedroom, and I sat down on the edge of my bed in a near catatonic state. I was numb. Surely this can't be happening, I thought. It must be a bad dream. He can't be gone. Maybe there's there's some mistake. I thought of our boys who loved their father. We're now getting to the ages where they would be able to play more roughly with him. I needed my husband. He always made everything okay. In that dark moment, my soul cried out to God and he began to give me a sense of peace and a confidence that the children and I were going to be all right. But even that comfort didn't take away the wrenching pain or the awful sense of loss that I felt. Nor did it answer the question that continually tugged at my heart. How can I live without Todd? How can I live Lisa was not the only one that lost her sense of self and of peace that day. She was not the only one that was crushed and felt utterly alone, desperate, and hopelessly hopeless. Many lost friends and family, and many shared her question, How can I live? Have you ever felt alone? Or the crushing pain from which you thought you might never arise? Have you ever been desperate? Ever felt hopelessly hopeless? Felt broken? Have you ever asked that question, how can I live? If you have the book of Ruth is for you. It's just four short chapters sandwiched in our English Bibles between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's got a lot to teach us about the nature and character of God and his redemptive purposes for us and for his people in Jesus Christ. Before we begin our journey through this beautiful story, we're going to take a step back and look across the literary horizon so that we can see how the author has constructed his argument together. I say his, but there's not actually any consensus on who wrote the book of Ruth. It is anonymous and we'll see it as such. It was likely written during the 11th century B.C., and it actually takes the U-shape of a traditional comedy, which just means that there's going to be some tragedy, it's going to take us down, and then as the characters overcome, there's going to be a resolution at the end. So we're going to go like this in terms of our emotion during the book of Ruth. All of the book scenes are going to fit together just like a puzzle, uh, and that's going to reveal to us the primary purpose of the author's writing. And so as much as I hate to do it, I'm going to ruin the ending for you if you don't know how it ends uh, so that we can have a better picture of uh, what the author intends to do. 
I hope this isn't like uh, somebody telling you that Bruce Willis is dead at the end of Sixth Sense. Uh, Hopefully you know how it ends a little bit and it's not terribly crushing for you. So let's turn to chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 to begin our time together. These verses are actually going to serve as, if you can think of, if you ever put a puzzle together, you have the top of the puzzle box, and you can see the picture in its completion, and then you get the pieces, and usually, if you're like me, you try to work the edges out first, and then slowly but surely, you start to put all the pieces together, and you have the picture that's on the box at the end, hopefully. Well, these verses are going to serve as our, I guess, puzzle box top, if you will. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. See, in these verses, we see the end. That in the end, God will meet the needs of Ruth, for whom the book is named. He will meet the needs of the book's main character, Naomi. And he will meet the needs of the nation of Israel. He will provide redeemers for all of them. Boaz will redeem Ruth as he takes her as a wife. Obed will redeem Naomi and care for her in her old age. And eventually, David will come and redeem the nation of Israel by his righteous rule. God will preserve Israel and Naomi And he will perpetuate the name of the dead through Ruth and Boaz. He will preserve the family line. The line line through which David will come. And eventually, the line through which Jesus will come. At the conclusion of all the events in Ruth, the words of 14 and 15 seem most true. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your soul in your old age. Indeed, the Lord has not left us this day without a redeemer. And so it's through these lenses that we should read the book of Ruth this morning and uh, throughout the rest of the month. The question that we're going to concern ourselves with today, the question of our text, which is just going to be the first five verses, is how can I live? And ultimately, the one big thing this morning, the answer to that question is that you can live through Jesus. The life that Jesus gives can never be taken away. Those who know Jesus are never truly without hope. We're going to work through the text in just two parts. Some of you are like, what, not three, not four, just two. Usually it's three. But it's an unwise decision in verse one and an empty life in verses two through five. Before we get to all that, though, we need to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord God, pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning that I might serve as the conduit through which your word is proclaimed faithfully. I pray that we all might hear it and be changed by it. We ask that through this message you would edify the saints, evangelize the lost, and make your name great. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. An unwise 
decision. Look at verse 1 with me, if you would, just the first six words. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, what do we know about the days when the judges ruled? Hopefully quite a bit. We just walked through the book since January and finished up last Sunday. So we know a little bit about the book of Judges. But just as a reminder, uh, we'll talk about some of the themes and things that go with that particular book. Uh, Remember, we talked that judges were not judicial judges. They didn't sit behind a bench and make judiciary decisions. They were more like William Wallace or more like uh, uh, the guy from Gladiator or the Hulk. They were military leaders that God raised up to deliver his people from the oppression of their enemies. And if you are familiar with judges, and I hope that you are, uh, the enemies were raised up as a result of Israel's sin to oppress them, to punish them for that sin so that judges has kind of a cycle in it. We called it the cycle of apostasy. And apostasy just means the abandonment of belief. A.K.A. Israel did whatever they wanted. So the cycle went something like this. The people turned from God and sinned. God judged the people, pressing them with a foreign people. The people cried out for deliverance, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, a judge, the military leader that was like William Wallace or the Hulk, who delivered Israel. And then the people would return to sin, and they would repeat this process over and over and over again. It was a tumultuous and dark time in Israel's history. I think the time of the judges is best defined by the last verse in that book, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Pointed to the fact that the people needed truth. The people needed a king to rule them. That's the context that we find, Ruth. It happens during the time of the judges. Next, still in verse 1, we see that there is a famine in the land. It's important to point out that famine and rain and crops are controlled by God. God brings famines. Enter into the picture a man named Elimelech, which we don't know his name yet. It's just a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Later we find out he's Elimelech. And Elimelech, as a result of the famine in the land does what's right in his own eyes, and he decides to sojourn or travel to the country of Moab. So they're going to go to Moab and stay there for a little while. Now, the author here does not comment on the right or wrong nature of Elimelech's decision to move to Moab, but let me tell you that at the very least, this decision was an unwise decision because Moab has traditionally been an enemy and an oppressor of Israel. Back in Numbers, uh, the 22nd chapter through the 24th chapter, Moab's king uh, tries to pay a guy named Balaam. Maybe you've heard him. He's the one whose donkey turns around and talks to him. It's a great story. If you don't know it, donkey talks. It's awesome. Numbers 22. Check it out later. And, uh, and rebukes him for trying to bring this curse against Israel. Moab wanted to curse Israel and was willing to pay a diviner to do it. Moab also worshipped other gods one of which uh, required child sacrifice, which is, that's just delightful. Uh, They were prohibited from entering the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy. I mean, Moab is just not a nice place. They're not friendly with Israel. Further, Elimelech is leaving the promised land. And the promised land, if you're not familiar, is the land that God promises to give to his people all the way back in Genesis. And it takes a long time for Israel to get there. 
you don't remember, uh, he promises it to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis. A bunch of stuff happens. There's 12 sons that turn into 12 tribes. You have Joseph in Egypt kind of as Pharaoh's right-hand man. He's making all these rules and judgments. And then eventually uh, the Israelites end up enslaved. And we get into the book of Exodus. Then Moses is raised up as a leader. There's a burning bush and he there's the 10 plagues. There's the parting of the Red Sea. There's wandering for 40 years in the desert. And then finally Joshua comes along and they begin to conquest the promised land. It's been a long journey. All of their history was more moving towards getting in this land, the land flowing with milk and honey. The land is important. Part of God's promise, if you remember in Genesis 17, verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning and the land of Canaan, for they are an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Again, in Exodus, God says to Israel, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God has a very distinct plan for Israel, a very distinct plan for his people, a very distinct plan for Elimelech. They are to be a distinct people living in a distinct land in a distinct way. I mean, it's not only seen in the promised land but also throughout the whole Old Testament, through the law, the ceremonial law and the moral law. Israel distinguishes itself by eating certain foods. They make some foods clean and other foods unclean. The way that they go about celebrating feasts unto the Lord. The way they worship as monotheists, only worshiping one God instead of many God. All these things are supposed to separate them from the surrounding people. Israel and Elimelech are called to be distinct. They're called to be holy. They're called to be set apart. Yet Elimelech moves his family away from the land flowing with milk and honey to Moab, land that is flowing with idolatry and syncretism, a land that came about as the result of an incest relationship between Lot and his daughter. A land that was only 50 miles to the east. There's famine in the promised land as a result of Israel's sin. And instead of being patient and trusting the Lord, instead of repenting and asking the Lord to to bless him and his family, Elimelech takes matters into his own hands. And he makes a choice. Chooses to go to Moab. A poor decision. As I read verse 1, I can't help but think of our own situation. Indeed, where we try to take matters into our own hands and abandon uh, what the Lord has told us to do in His Word. We abandon the truth that's been revealed to us and do what seems right in our own eyes. There is not a famine. We don't live in the promised land, nor have we chosen to leave the promised land. But like Israel and like Elimelech, we are called to be God's distinctive people and to trust him. Our decisions, the decisions that we make each and every day, will either set us apart as the people of God, or they will set us apart from the people of God. Unlike Israel, we don't have a promised land to go to. And we are sojourners in a land 
that is defined by many foreign gods. I think today's gods are uh, most likely the gods of tolerance and of syncretism. And I think that that description in Judges fits 2014 really, really well. That everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Those outside of the church contend that those who follow Jesus are unloving because they refuse to embrace the whimsy of the day and claim that there is an exclusive truth, that there's only one way to be made right with God, Jesus, and that any other way is a wrong way. They say that's intolerant. Culturally, I think we've become a people without principles, without truths or without authority. And as a result, instead of responding to sin with repentance and with obedience, we simply redefine it and assimilate it into our lives, even into our own churches. We take our idols where we want to take them rather than casting them down. Whether it be same-sex marriage or greed or pride or selfishness or gossip or slander or abortion or lust or materialism or dishonest business or jealousy, whatever our sin of choice is, we excuse it as just another part of who we are. We coddle it that we might better appeal to those among whom we live so that we don't have to do what is hard and say that we are broken and that we need the faithful God. Instead of lovingly leading one another into repentance and submission to God's word, we choose to live according to our culture. Often we bend the knee to Uncle Sam instead of to Jesus. So that we won't be seen as extreme religious people. Yet that's exactly how Jesus was viewed. It's an extremely religious personality. We fear that... That's what will happen to us if we identify too closely with Jesus. And so, in the name of protecting our self-confidence and our acceptability in the culture, we continue to do what's right in our own eyes, earning more and more of the death that we all deserve. So we all deserve the right wrath of God. You and I are all guilty of treason before God because we, try, we have tried to become God and rule over our own lives and define our own truths. No matter how hard we try, we can't be perfect. We can't live sinless lives. We cannot earn salvation in our own efforts. The world is broken. It was broken back in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. And it's been broken ever since. We are, by nature, sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We need a Savior to fix that brokenness. At this point in Israel's history, they're looking to a king to come and reign righteously to make all things right. We, like Israel, are in need of a king. We're in need of a Redeemer. And God has not left us this day without a Redeemer. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can hope to live out our faith as a distinct people. Friends, we must not dance to the rhythm of the cultural drum. We must not do what is right in our own eyes. We must be a distinct people, an obedient people, 
when our famines come, metaphorically speaking, and they will come, hard times will come, we must trust the Lord and submit ourselves to his will and to his word rather than taking matters into our own hands and doing what's right in our own eyes. Let's go to verse 2 in an empty life. The, na- the, man, I'm sorry, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of the two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malone and Kilion died. So that the women, or so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and without her husband. First, notice that what started as a sojourn, which is supposed to be this temporary trip where you stay somewhere for a little while, turns into a remaining. They stay in Moab for a while. Next, we see that Elimelech is described as the husband of Naomi. This never happens in scripture, right? It's pointing out to us that A, the author doesn't really care much for Elimelech, and B, that Naomi is going to be the main character of this story. In case everybody else dying didn't give it away, she's the main character. So Elimelech dies, and Naomi is left with her two sons, Malone and Kilion. I have to let you all know this. It's not much of a secret, but these names are really interesting because they're kind of ridiculous. Malone means weak or sterile, and Kilion means pining or wasting away. I don't know about you, but uh, I'd have a hard time imagining this being my name, pining or wasting away or weak or sterile. Just really kind of weird names. I, I mean, can you imagine trying to get a date? Like, and these guys come up with wives, right? So regardless of their names, they overcome that. I imagine they must have been charmers. And they get married to a couple of Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. They're married 10 years, and then they both die. Now, it's easy for us to to skim over this introduction to the book of Ruth, but try and understand the devastation here. Naomi leaves the promised land with her husband to avoid famine and to avoid the death of her family. She moves into a land where she's surrounded by foreign gods, foreign people that speak a foreign language. Her husband dies. Now, it's it's always difficult to lose a spouse. But in Naomi's case, it's especially devastating. But at least she still had her her two sons who could support her. Now, keep in mind that it's a patriarchal society. One in which a woman without a husband or without sons had basically no hope and would be destitute. Then after losing her husband, she attends the weddings of her two sons. She'd have to sit there and watch them dance their first dance and take the vows that she took with the husband that she lost. Be hard. Then the marriage of her sons, which was a little bit of hope for her brought her the hope of grandchildren and of peace, took away that fear of being destitute. But after 10 years of of that marriage, there were two sons, those 10 years end not with the positive pregnancy test. 
but with the death of her sons. She had stood next to her husband's grave and mourned with them, and now she would mourn for them, her only children. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. Parents are not supposed to attend the funerals of their children. Yet Naomi has to, twice. It's difficult to grasp how desperate Naomi's situation really is. So at the end of these first five verses, we find that the family she left Judah with, full with, is now empty. The lives she had hoped to preserve were now lost. She's left with no husband, no sons, and no hope. Her only comfort is her daughter-in-law Orpah, her daughter-in-law Ruth, and her own tears. She is broken. She must have thought at this point, how can I live? Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt crushing pain from which you might never arise? Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever felt hopelessly hopeless? Have you ever felt broken? Well, then the book of Ruth is for you. Perhaps you were broken this morning. The story is for you. After all, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Heart God will not despise. And so my exhortation for this portion of the sermon is that you would be broken. Broken because of your sin. That you would be broken, that you would see your need to be healed. Indeed, I would challenge you to be broken for this entire series. Because only that which is broken can be fixed. It's the sick who require a doctor. And friends, the truth, the hard truth, is that we are all terminally ill. Our condition is beyond repair. We can't repair it on our own. We've all sinned. We've all done what is right in our own eyes. We've all gone astray. We've all sought ourselves first. We've all worshipped foreign gods. We've all joined the rebellion against our Creator. Our situation seems hopeless. But we aren't without hope. Friends, this morning, when we have that question before us, how can I live? The answer is through the King, through Jesus. For while we were still sinners, while we were still in open rebellion against God, we wanted nothing to do with God. Jesus died for us. He removed the blinders from our eyes so that we could see our desperate condition, so that we could see our brokenness, our need for a Savior. For our sake, he that knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. We deserve to die. Yet he died for us and gave us his righteousness so that we could have peace with God. 
Yes, if you're here and you are a Christian of any age, you know the truth. That you were dead once in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And you once walked according to the sons of disobedience and lived according to the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But you know that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Yes, we know that by grace we have been saved through faith. And this, not of ourselves, not of our own doing, but as the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Indeed, we've all earned hell and punishment and wrath. But Jesus took our place as our champion, so that upon naming him as our champion, upon trusting him, upon professing our faith in him, We might have peace with God. We might inherit true blessing, true promise, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of Jesus' performance. We are saved when we profess faith in Him. That is faith upon His work on the cross as our substitute. Faith that after the Lord Jesus breathed his last, that after the soldier plunged a spear deep into his side so that blood and water streamed out, after his limp corpse was carried and bound in linen cloths and laid in the empty tomb, faith that after they rolled the stone in front of that tomb, that after his disciples and everybody else asked that question, how can I live? He answered by raising From the dead. That's what our faith is in. Is in his victory over death. And in his return. See it's through faith in him. As God that we might have relationship with God. It's through him and him alone that we might have life. That we might have hope. He alone reconciles us to God. And there is no other name, there's no other way for us to be saved. There's no other way for us to have true meaning in life, to have an unshakable identity, to have true satisfaction. So Blaise Pascal said that there's a God-shaped vacuum in everybody's heart, right? In every human heart. And the only thing that can fill it is the eternal God. I think what happens is, is we all try to fill this void in our lives. We all try to find meaning and satisfaction in things and how many kids we have, how good our family is, how much money we have, how well our sports team does, how many people like us. And none of them truly work because like Naomi's family, they can be taken away from us in a second. The only true Identity that can never be taken from us. The only true place that we can never have taken from us is Jesus. Jesus alone offers us true satisfaction, true hope. Jesus alone is the life that cannot be taken away. And he came so that we might know life and know it to the full. So that we might live life to its fullest. 
In Sunday school this morning, we talked a, a little bit about um, pleasures and observing beauty. And we talked about how for the Christian, uh, because we know God, we're able to enjoy everything in God's world in a way that the non-Christian never could. And, and I've used this example before, but I love it. A Christian and a non-Christian can both enjoy a nice piece of steak and a nice glass of wine. But for the Christian, it's more pleasurable. Not because the wine or, or the, the steak is any different, but because for the Christian, the pleasure doesn't stop simply with the food and the drink. For the Christian, that pleasure rolls up into praise and worship of God. It doesn't terminate simply with the thing. It extends up into worship and praise of the Lord. True satisfaction. So too with all of life. All of life is worship, friends. It's worship of God or of self or of something else. See, we choose what we're going to worship each and every day, each and every moment. Self or the Savior. Christian, I want you to remember the gospel this morning as we go through this series. That beautiful truth that we were desperate and without hope and that Jesus came as our true hope. And that by faith in him, we have peace with God. That's good news this morning. And I want you to think on it so that when we come together, we have fresh eyes. And that broken, we experience the grace of God as if it were the first time. God has not left us without a redeemer. Indeed, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, if you don't know Jesus... You're where we all have been, dead in your trespasses and sins. And as we've discussed before, dead men don't do anything. They don't even breathe. They do nothing. My prayer this morning is that perhaps the Spirit of God is wakening your soul. That you might bend the knee to His Lordship. That you might recognize your sickness, your deadness. And receive the life that He offers. So that in answering the question, how can I live? You might not be hopelessly hopeless. But full of the one great hope, the one great love, the man, Jesus. Who gave his life that you might live. We are not without hope this morning. Not without life. And so I conclude with uh, words from the book of Ruth, from that puzzle Box top, if you will. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in all the universe. He is the restorer of life and the nourisher of your soul. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are the restorer of life. You are the nourisher of our souls. And that you alone can give us true satisfaction. And that all these empty things in the world, they are nothing. Nothing compared to the joy of knowing you. And that their very purpose for existence is to point us to you, the giver of all good gifts. So Lord, this morning, remind us through the story of Naomi and the story of her brokenness. Of our own brokenness. Of our own need for a redeemer. Lord, we acknowledge our sin to you this morning. 
Lord, we confess our sin to you this morning. We need you. We are dirty. Some of us fought with our spouses on the way here. Some of us came here in anger. Some of us have been prideful and self-absorbed this week. Lord, there are, there are so many sins in the room. Lord, we give all of them to you now. And ask for your forgiveness anew. And we know that it's granted. Because you came, lived the perfect life, and died the perfect death. And you have judged us as righteous in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this great grace and this great mercy. Help us to not forget it this week. Help us to preach this gospel to ourselves daily. Fill us with your spirit freshly. We need you this morning to redeem and nourish our souls. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.